Thank you for listening in today to our Friday broadcast of Abiding in the Word with Dave Love, Senior Pastor of Calvary Castle Rock. Today, we'll continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel. So let's join Pastor Dave now. Soon your trials will be over. And so he is the Lord of hosts and his purposes will be accomplished. The title Lord is used about 60 times in these first three chapters of 1 Samuel. So again, it shows Lord. He is Lord. He is master. He is sovereign is what that says. Elkanah goes up every year to worship in Shiloh. Um, If you've read through uh, Judges, you know that that is where the tabernacle is. It's in Shiloh. It's not in Jerusalem. Shiloh is about 20 miles uh, um, south or north of of Jerusalem. And so uh, this is where uh, the tabernacle is, is in in Shiloh. And it actually stayed there in Shiloh for about 400 years. So quite a long time is where the tabernacle was there in Shiloh, there in Ephraim. According to the law of Moses, Israelites were not to worship God through sacrifice any time, any way that they pleased. They were to bring their sacrifice to the tabernacle of God, the priests of God, which at this time were at Shiloh. And so Elkanah, God has obtained is what that means. God has a hold of him. He shows he's a godly man. He's going up at the time that he's supposed to, giving the sacrifice that he is supposed to. He's being obedient to God. He's being obedient to God. And so... It says also the two sons of Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Now this is interesting that this is mentioned here if you ask me because it's showing a guy that's going up and, it's, and you would think all would have to say, well, he's going up to give sacrifices there in Shiloh. Okay. But it mentions here that also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there. Well, why would they be mentioned? Unless through the leading guide of the Holy Spirit, that God wanted you to understand um, the culture and the context of what's going up. Because Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were very, very wicked guys. They were evil. They were corrupt. They didn't have a spiritual bone in their bodies. They stole uh, the sacrifices from the people. Uh, they were meeting with prostitutes and sleeping with the women at the gate of the tabernacle. And so this is being mentioned here to show that Elkanah, like everyone else, knew that these guys were corrupt. But yet he still comes and brings his sacrifice because that's what God says to do. Even though the spiritual leaders were corrupt, that did not um, allow for Elkanah to say, well, then I'm not going to give my sacrifice. See, even though they're corrupt, he still needs to do what he's supposed to do. Now, when I look at this, it should bring us some comfort today that there are those who have given money and resources to a ministry um, only to find out that the person who was overseeing that ministry wasn't faithful and used the funds for other things. And sometimes I will, I will counsel these people and they'll say, I feel like such an idiot for giving. I should have known. And No, 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 no. You did the right thing. You gave where you were supposed to give and you know what? Where, whatever happens with it from then on is not your responsibility. It's now the responsibility of the person who oversees that ministry. That they bathe it in prayer and they're doing the things that God has called them to do. But you are still did the right thing. It doesn't negate 
Elkanah's responsibility to bring an offering to the tabernacle of God as directed. And it's the same thing with us. When we are ministering and when we are given of our resources and our tithes and our offering to a ministry, and then you find out later on that ministry was not faithful with that, you still did the right thing. And you cannot go, well, that's the last time I ever give. Because you still have responsibility to give to the Lord. And you will get a reward for that. Verse 4 says, And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. I find this interesting as well. The Lord is the one that closed the womb. However you want to deal with that, and we'll talk about that here in a moment, but a lot of times we have to look at things and says, and, and as bad as it might seem, you, you still have to be able to say, it was the Lord. The Lord's doing something here. When we're in the midst of that, it can be very frustrating. But there's also something very comforting of knowing it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And so she receives a double portion. The sacrifices, uh, these are peace offerings where the blood would be poured out at the foot of the altar, the fat was burned on the fire, the breast and the right shoulder were the portion of the priest, and then the rest belonged to him who made the offering. On it, he and his family would feast, and each received his portion. And so, obviously, um, he gave a double portion when it came to Hannah. In chapters 2, 12 through 17, we're told that the wicked sons of Eli would actually take more of the offering than they were supposed to. And so, they didn't just take their fair share, they would take more. And so again, it shows their wickedness, and they took a lot more than what was according to the law. And so Elkanah would give a double portion to show Hannah how much he loved her, even though she couldn't bear children. So in verse 6, it says, and her rival. So not only does she have to suffer through barrenness, she has a rivalry within her own household. Within her own household. Her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. Now let me ask you a question here. If we were to really obey the word of God where two shall become one, yeah, but some rabbis got together and they have this commentary that it's okay because you need to you know, uh, continue to um, uh, advance the seed of Israel and that's what we've been called to do. But it says two shall become one. It doesn't say three. So because of that, if Hannah is barren then I am barren. And we'll go through this together. And I love that because that's what Zacharias and Elizabeth did. Zacharias didn't get another wife. So the misery that she went through, guess what? He was there with her every step of the way and say, we'll go through this together. That's why when you get married, it's for better or for worse. Sickness or in health. You go through it together. If you have financial problems, we have financial problems. If you're barren, we're barren. And we'll go through this together. And I'm sorry, but I have to believe that it would have been a whole lot better off for Hannah to be barren with her husband alone than to bring in a woman and have children sired by her and then all of a sudden have these little rugrats running around and the joy and the happiness of kids to where he doesn't share in her you know, loss 
but instead sharing in her joys over here, and that's going to make it doubly difficult. Doubly difficult. That's not what it is he should have done. And that's why I look at Zacharias and go, man, that's awesome. Because I pretty much think he had that, that thought, just going, hey, if you can't have kids, we can't have kids. That's why when they did have John the Baptist, how exciting that was for her, but just as much exciting for him. Because that'll be his first child as well. I'm here to tell you, I don't think it was as much of a blessing to him to have a child with Hannah, even though it was Samuel, because he's already experienced having kids. And he doesn't get to experience that first time with her. It's different. It's just different. But the Lord had closed her room, and so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. And then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? To which I would have turned around, was I not good enough for you for ten sons? Because it wasn't good enough for you, right? Yeah, there's a little bit of a double standard here. There's no question about it. And there's no mention of Hannah trying to retaliate. Again, I see the Lord here. Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. Hannah doesn't, you know, try and, uh, try and get back or anything like that. Does not try and um, provoke her back or anything like that. It is hard to understand the ways of the Lord sometimes. Why he would bless children with a very cruel woman like Panina and withhold children from a very gracious woman like Hannah. But God's ways are not our ways. And through this process, he was creating an incredibly godly character in her. A very godly character in Hannah. Making her a woman of prayer and devotion to the Lord. And it's painful sometimes when couples go through this and, and they're barren. But God can turn that around for good and he can use it to bring him glory. Verse 9, so Hannah rose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. And now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul. It just shows the anguish that she's going through. And prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. So she's distraught. She goes to the tabernacle, prays that God will allow her to have a male child, a son. Um, And so this prayer begins with the title, Lord of hosts. She acknowledges God as the one who is sovereign, that he could have his way and purposes in her life. She recognizes, submits herself to whatever God wants, But she still asks and says, and and just so you know, whatever you give me, I'll give him back to you. And no razor will touch his head. Now that's significant because that speaks of a Nazarite vow. I want you to go to Numbers chapter 6. In Numbers chapter 6. It says in verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink 
He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice or eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. All the days of the vow of the separation no razor shall come upon his head till the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy, then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean, even for a father and mother, for his brother or sister when they die, because the separation of God, to God is on his head. All the days of the separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. And so here's the point of this vow. You have been separated for God. Your holiness is there for the Lord. It is, it is a reminder that this separation from wine and grapes and, and things like that, not cutting the ha- hair, um, being kept from the dead, these are things that um, a high priest or the priests are supposed to uh, stay away from as well. Not supposed to touch a dead body, not supposed to be near a dead body. You're supposed to keep separate uh, when you're there in the sanctuary, uh, away from wine and intoxicating drink, things like that. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 21. But the Nazarite lived as if his whole, the whole world was a place that was a holy place that they were separated from. The priests themselves were holy in their service of the Lord in the sanctuary, but a Nazarite, was, his holy service was outside the sanctuary. He was holy as the whole world was a holy place to him, and he was to refrain from that. His hair, um, in Scripture, hair speaks of a crown of glory. In, in Proverbs 20, 29, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray head or hair. A Nazarite will wear his growing crown, which is uh, um, a type of a high priest's crown. And when that vow is completed, the Nazarite would cut off his hair, his crown, place it on the altar, it would be burned with fire, with a peace offering, thus signifying him, him throwing his crown down before the Lord. Where do you hear that before? Revelation chapter 4, it talks about how the 24 elders, which represents the church, it says in Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, worship him who lives forever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive the glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they will exist and were created. You are called to be separate from the world. This world is a holy place in which you are called to be separate unto the Lord, much like a Nazarite would have been who has taken on this vow. You're not serving inside the sanctuary. This whole world is a sanctuary. And you're going to look different and you're going to act different and people are going to know that you are separated unto me. Does that not speak of what God has called us to do today? Absolutely. You're not to be holy here in this building. You're supposed to be holy and separated under God wherever you go. So people can see a difference. They have to be able to see that difference. They have to be able to do that. We have record of three permanent Nazarites in the Bible. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. They were supposed to be Nazarites for their whole life. It's notable to see the type between Samuel and John the Baptist because John the Baptist was to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of their Messiah, their king from the line of David. And Samuel is preparing the hearts of the people for their future coming king, David, in whom 
the descendancy of the future king would come and reign forever in the person of Christ. Now, I particularly don't believe this is probably the first time that Hannah actually prayed for a son. But I bet it was the first time that she prayed with such sincerity of just going, I just want to let you know, whatever you do for me, I'm giving it right back to you. So if you're going to bless me with a son, I just want to let you know, until he's weaned, I am going to give him right back to you. And she's the one that offers up, he will be a Nazarite. Where all the other times, God is the one that spoke and said, no razor shall touch his head. He did that with Samson. He did that with John the Baptist. But not so with Samuel. With Samuel, Hannah offers that up. I think that's awesome. I think it's awesome. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. Another version says those hearts who are completely towards him. That means that that God is really looking. He has to search. It's just not everywhere he looks. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me, he says. So there's people that, well, what about that person? What about that person? But God knows the heart. He's looking for that person that will just give it all to him. Hannah has come to this place and said, there's no greater desire that I have. There's no greater purpose for a woman in that culture than to have a child and then to have a male child. And I'll give you the greatest gift that you could could give me, a male child, I'll give it right back to you. That's someone who's completely sold out. That's somebody that that God has brought to a point where they're just saying, Lord, just have all of me. The great thing is you can't outgive God. You know what's so cool when she gives uh, Samuel back to the Lord? We find out in the following chapter, in chapter 2, that uh, she has five more kids after that. (laughs) Can't outgive God, you know? God needs a man to leave Israel during these desperate days and He needs a man he could speak through. We find out in chapter 3 that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, that there was no widespread revelation. God wasn't speaking to men at that time. He just hadn't found that person whose heart was loyal to him. So Hannah, Hannah finally out of desperation of her soul says, Lord, if you would just give me a son, I'll give him back to you all the days of his life. And that's what God was desiring. He wanted a man that he could have all the days of his life. And that was given on his behalf by Hannah. Moms, don't think that you don't have influence in the lives of your children. You most certainly do. And it's in the power of prayer here. And God hears those prayers that you're praying for your children. He hears those prayers. When God now gives, he many times delays in giving in order that he might give more. Um, You know, he could have answered this prayer of Hannah's a long time ago when she was praying for her son. But he was waiting for her to get to that place of of total surrender. It was through this that, that Hannah, we see this godly character of Hannah that we have before us right now. In James 4, 3, it says, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. We don't always know how to pray how we ought to pray. 
And in Romans 8.26, it, it tells us that. And so sometimes there's just this groaning, Lord, I, I don't really know how to formulate this prayer. I know what it is that I desire, but, but as I think about it, and, and when I formulate it in my own words, it doesn't sound too godly. There's a lot of me in it. There's a lot about how this is just going to bless my flesh. But, but I'm prompted to pray about this, this issue, this situation. But I, so I'm just laying it before you. And, and a lot of times you just go, there it is. Thy will be done. I have no direction on how to pray on this. And sometimes that's kind of what needs to take place. God will take it from there. In 1 John 5.14 it says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, Jesus, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. There's certain things that God tells us to pray for one another. Um, God tells you to love your neighbor. God tells you to be a light and a witness. So it's not as though you have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, do you want me to pray for this guy? Do you really ever have to ask that question? You really don't. You already know what God's will is. So if you come alongside his will, know that he hears that. What, what he does with it, the result of that is up to the Lord. One of, the, one of my favorite things to do in prayer is to say, okay, Lord, I know I have my little agenda time where I prayed for all these things, but would you just put on my heart the things you want me to pray? And you know the things that come to your mind at that point? That's of God. Pray for that. I guarantee you he's going to answer that. Pray for that. Because that's what he wants. When you ask for that, what you're saying is that, Lord, I want to pray for your will. Show me what you want me to pray about. Show me where you want me to be about. Because some of the other stuff I was just praying for is kind of like, hmm, I think some of it you probably wanted me to pray for or whatever, but I know that there was a lot of me in that. And just come alongside of it. Much of what we ask is not really according to God's will. It's according to my own desires. And, and I'm thinking of how I can use it for me. And so I have a feeling that Hannah, no doubt, for the longest time was thinking that way. And, uh, and so she arranges it differently. Not so it would just minister to her, but she goes, yes, that, that desire is still there. But I want to know that I will turn around and give it right back to you. And I think that's very important when it comes to there's something that you really desire for what reason or another, and, and it might not even be um, uh, a selfish desire at all. But you want to kind of figure out if it is or not. And you could be praying for something and just saying, Lord, I just want to let you know, if, if you bring it my way, I'll give it right back to you. I will use it for your glory. And God is the one that knows if you really will or not telling you, Lord, if you just let me win this raffle. Lord, if you, if you just give me the money and, and my job to buy this red Ferrari. No. God knows that you can't really use that red Ferrari for his glory. He knows, and you know. That's why I pray, Lord, thy will be done. Lord, show me the things that you want me to pray for. If I could just win the lotto... 50% of that will go to you, Lord. I forget what movie it was. It was a long time ago. And uh, it, was, it was one where 
Burt Reynolds was trying to commit suicide, and he, and he jumps, and he, and, he, and, he, uh, and he swims way out in the ocean because he just wants to die, and he goes under, and he realizes how stupid suicide is. And he comes back up, and he's so tired, he can't make it to shore, and he's just crying out, Lord, if you just help me make it to shore, I'll give you 50%. And as he gets closer to the shoreline, I'll give you, I won't forget about that 20% we were talking about. And when he makes it, you know I'm good for that 10%. You know, and that's kind of kind of how it is. And God knows that. That wraps up this Friday edition of Abiding in the Word with Pastor Dave Love. Join us again on Monday as we continue our study in 1 Samuel. If you live in the area of Castle Rock and are looking for a church to call home, be sure to come by and visit with us. We meet Saturdays at 5 p.m. and our Sunday service times are at 9 and 11 a.m. A combined junior and senior high class meets at 5 p.m. on Saturday evenings. On Sunday mornings, high school meets during the 9 a.m. service and the junior high meets at the 11 a.m. service. Our Young Adults Ministry, Arise, meets every Friday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Castle Rock. Child care is offered for all of our weekend services. Calvary Castle Rock is located right off of I-25 and East Wolfensburger Road, directly behind Jack in the Box and the Shell Gas Station. For more information about us or this radio ministry, please visit our website at calvarycr.com or download our free mobile app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. You can also call the church office at 303-663-2514. Thank you again for joining us today. Until our next time together, we want to encourage you to always be abiding in the Word of God. Oh,